0: Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's good to be back on the air, and I'm sure many of you all were wondering where I had been the last couple of days. Well, I'm busy, but then again, who isn't? However, at the same time, it's good to have a few extra days to prepare for the um, upcoming uh, podcast that will be taking place um, here shortly. What I mean by that is that um, you need to have time to uh, prepare for what you want to discuss, find out what's necessary and what might not be necessary to share. After all, it's one thing to share this information with you all, but it's also important to do it right, because if it's not done right, then who knows what kind of curveballs can be thrown to where the um, most essential points of the podcast episode itself may not get um, discussed in um, in a proper orderly manner. So, this uh, episode that we're going to be discussing in uh, Paul Revere's ride is the second battle of Lexington and Concord, or let alone, I should say, the aftermath. You know, didn't we just uh, fight battles at Lexington and Concord? So, is it possible that the second battle of Lexington and Concord will be the same thing that happened in the morning at Lexington and then late morning into the rest of the um, daytime in Concord. Well, usually when I think of something like the Second Battle of Lexington and Concord, for example, I was led to believe when I first read this book that there was actually two battles. But we might be surprised to know that the Second Battle of Lexington and Concord might not have necessarily involved violence. Now, I won't give all of it away, but I've think it probably is best for me to tell you all that now, but we will get to um, the point here eventually soon as to why it is truly called the Second Battle of Lexington and Concord. So, uh, where we left off from the previous podcast, um, Lord Hugh Percy and his uh, forces somehow, miraculously, were able to escape the, um, what do you call... They escaped by an act of God almost uh Colonel uh, Pickering, who would go on to have a good career in the American Revolution did not um, it's probably safe to say he didn't start out with a good um with a good intro in terms of uh, conducting himself as an officer he uh, was too hesitant and um, missed a golden opportunity in the end that could have uh, finished what was left of the uh, british um Infantry, although they did sustain um, casualties, but sometimes when it comes down to that very, very um, last um, piece of the home stretch where the job needs to be completely finished and it's not, that's where um, a mistake can sometimes uh, haunt you regardless of the side you're on, but it's very important to finish what you started, and of course, you know, General William Heath um, the uh, fighting that occurred at Concord earlier in the day, all of that went smoothly. It was just that very, very last piece of um, of terrain that, yes, we had militiamen lined up ready to go. They weren't the problems. It was the leadership at the very end. But, of course, we'll never really know who was to blame, but if you asked me, I would say it was uh, Colonel Pick, Timothy Pickering, who truly missed the golden opportunity to finish the, um, what had already been started much earlier in the day so our first uh, leadoff question for this uh, podcast episode is going to be the following once Lord Percy and his brigade units arrived into Charlestown on the evening of April 19th of 1775 were they completely exhausted if anybody doesn't think that they were completely exhausted um, I think something's probably not right with those individuals, the answer is an obvious yes. They were uh, completely exhausted. I believe it is fair to say that many of these uh, soldiers did not anticipate um, anything in their own rightful minds that could have um, turned out the way it had. They obviously, um, obviously, you know, Lexington was just a 101 skirmish. But little did they know as they went on to Concord that there would be more and more militia forces mustering to where it would truly be an all-out assault. And little did um, Lord Percy's uh, regiments or any other British officers' regiments realize that they were going not only just into hostile territory, but they would be uh, going up against a style of fighting that they encountered from the French and Indian War, but little did they know that the um, militia had enough common sense to be able to engage in that kind of uh, warfare style, guerrilla warfare, a.k.a. irregular style um, fighting. So the British grenadiers and the light infantry pretty much had not slept for two days. Some troops had marched 40 miles in 21 hours whereas many had been under hostile fire for eight hours straight. So I can't imagine not having slept for two days. Obviously, if you haven't slept for any amount of consistent time in a two-day span, then yes, you are not only exhausted, you are not um, in your own right state of mind. And, you know, think about this, folks. We don't have the kind of transportation, I mean, the, the kind of transportation that was around in 18th century was not as, perhaps, it was not completely sophisticated like it is today, so yes, to march 40 miles in 21 hours, uh, that is you know, one could say that's remarkable, but at the same time you um, should also take into consideration that, um, that this was no marathon. I mean, you know, 40 miles in 21 hours and You have five hours that uh, saw a massive delay because of breakdown in communication within the British Army. So with all that breakdown in communication, as we discussed from the previous podcast, with letters not getting sent to uh, top-ranking officers, no wonder their journey took longer. And by the time they really knew where they were going, it was almost too late. In other words, by the time they knew where they were going... they couldn't have just turned around and said hey we we want to we want out, so yes, uh, to have marched forty miles in twenty one hours was daunting enough, but to have been under hostile fire for eight hours, I think personally to me, if, if one were to ask which do you think would have been the worst of the three um, three answers there, I would have said being under hostile fire for eight hours, and the majority of the British casualties got transported across the Charles River to Boston by HMS Somerset, which happened to be the same ship that tried to block uh, Paul Revere's mission uh, where he crossed the Charles River um, successfully to um, advise of the um, warning where the British would either come by land or sea, that is, uh, one if by land and two if by sea in terms of uh, lights being lit at the uh, North Steeple Church. So the HMS Somerset is transporting these uh, British casualties, which are very high in number, to where naval forces needed three hours to ferry them across the river. So this wasn't a one-stop shop, folks, in terms of casualties. Um and into the late evening of April the 19th, uh, Percy's remaining light infantry and grenadier forces transported, were transported back to Boston by the, the HMS Somerset. They were replaced with reinforcements from General Gage's 2nd Brigade. I can't imagine being any one of these um, infantry and grenadier forces knowing that um like I've said earlier, how the, the day that you have encountered one that was hellish, one that was um, almost uh, not just hellish, but perhaps nightmarish, if that's the right way to, to sum it up, because many of these soldiers just did not expect what they truly encountered. They were truly expecting a route, except the problem was that they were the ones that got routed. As British troops, whom survived being under hostile fire for eight hours, got transported to Boston, what game plan did American Commander General William Heath devise? This is an interesting one, folks, but you know, if you're uh, General William Heath and you're on the American side, you have um, achieved more than anybody would have given you credit for. But at the same time, you can't... Um, you can't assume anything. You can't just sit back and say, well, we've scored a huge victory. We really don't need to worry about doing anything else. The British are on the run, and um, they don't, they're not going to come back and fight us, or they're not going to come back and do anything that would uh, harm us. That's wishful thinking, but uh, as for General William Heath, he assigns troops to go on patrol duty throughout the night in preparation for anything unexpected. All right, when I think of anything unexpected, how about a a surprise attack by the British with uh, reinforcements, especially it could have come from, say, General Gage's 2nd Brigade. So I believe General William Heath has made a smart decision here. You know, yes, you've scored a big victory, but you never know what can, can be expected at nighttime. So, hey. Have assigned troops on patrol duty. After all, this fight is far from over. On the morning of April 20th, British regulars had awakened only to find themselves surrounded by a large militia army which re- arrived from remote places of New England. So, for all we know, folks, that this large militia army could have had um, forces of men from other outlying areas outside of Boston 30-40 miles away and remember folks uh, New Hampshire borders Massachusetts so for all we know men um, coming from say Portsmouth, New Hampshire which is 50 miles north of Boston could have trekked all this way south to have been a part of a to have been a greater part of something um, large scale in terms of of having a large militia army that would surround these British regulars. So think about it: we got, you know, three states border—well, uh, technically four states border Massachusetts, New York, um, New Hampshire. At at this time in 1775, folks, it's New York, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, and Connecticut. So it's fair to say that uh, not only New Hampshire, you could have had men coming from Connecticut and perhaps from Rhode Island, who were a part of this greater um, army of militiamen surrounding British regular troops. Did Patriot forces successfully cut off British troops' access to essential provisions like fresh food? Yes. Over a short time period, British forces had been reduced to living on salt provisions, which included being confined to just Boston you know so much has changed over so much had changed over the last year in Boston. you know here the British had passed those uh, or Parliament had passed those intolerable aka coercive acts which uh, cut off all trade into Boston, meaning that the port of Boston had closed, and that the new port of uh, Massachusetts was Salem being an hour north of Boston so what the what Parliament may have done looked great on paper. But isn't it fair to say that a year later, in 1775, it's lost its luster for the British? How so? Because patriot forces had successfully cut off their en- their opponents' access to the most essential provisions. And think about this. When Parliament passed the, those coercive acts a year earlier, they had done just the same thing, except it was in the opposite. They were the ones cutting off Um, the colonists' access to essential provisions like fresh food. So it's a double-edged sword here, except this time the colonists have struck back, not only on the battlefield, but also by means of mobilizing greater forces, not only just within Boston, but outside of Boston. Did men from the highest to lowest ranks of British infantry ever imagined being defeated by forces they portrayed as being rabble. No. However, after the fighting itself ended on April the 19th of 1775, men from all ranks began searching for someone to blame. Well, when you are the mightiest empire in the world, it is easy to assume that you are invincible. It's easy to assume that nothing can stop you. Sure, you could go head to toe with an enemy that, that says a lot of things, but yet doesn't know how to um, fight an actual um, battle, or battles for that matter. Well, it turns out that the enemy not only knew how to um, speak in terms of um, voicing their opposition to unjust uh, treatment, the enemy knew how to uh, engage in warfare, but it is fair to say that the enemy was comprised of not just one person in Paul Revere warning the, f- the fellow people of Massachusetts that the British were coming, the people of Massachusetts, many of them being soldiers, one at one time had fought previous wars most notably the french and indian war they were no strangers to war remember folks they may not have been the best dressed of men and it wasn't because they chose to be uh frumpy it it it, it had nothing to do with their choosing to be um to look slovenly it was just what they had on it, it was the necessary clothing they had and it, and it's and it got by and they survived but yet they may have been ragtag looking but somehow they still managed to go head to toe with the mightiest empire in the world and were able to defeat the mightiest empire on April 19th of 1775 so who are the british going who are the british from within their um, military system Who do they want to blame? Could it be one person, or could it be many? I would like to think that the blame cannot be on just one person alone. To me, the blame would have to come from a multitude of sources. Lieutenant Barker believed that the fighting at Concord alone could have been avoided had Colonel Francis Smith arrived sooner to the North Bridge once tensions began ensuing. Well, remember, folks, Colonel Francis Smith is the one that pretty much is the saving grace for the British at Lexington. He's the one that pretty much has to tell the soldiers to get back in line. He's the one that um, lambasted other officers' um, failure to um, control their men, but he also lambasted those officers who, um, for one, never gave any proper command for their um, Units to fire, and two. It wasn't so much that they fired into the fired into the uh, crowd of uh, militiamen. The fact that eight militiamen die. They may not. Have, they all didn't die on the battlefield. Remember, folks. Some of them shot, were shot, and yet they survived for that time period of time. Being, they weren't far from their homes, and about three or four of them died right in front of their um, properties. In front of their uh, per, in front of their private property, being that of their home. But could but could blood itself have had been um, bloodshed itself had been prevented? Perhaps so, yes. But we also know that the uh, firing at Lexington was not uh, started by militia forces. It wasn't started by regulars. It more than likely that first shot was fired from a bystander who was. Um, Hiding behind a um, stone wall, whom decided to fire to make um, to let it be known that shots were heard around the world. However, you know Colonel Smith could not have been in twelve places at one time. He did the best he could to get the um, to get those forces regrouped at Lexington Green, but it took obviously a lot longer because many of them chose to be hostile towards him. But yes, if he had arrived sooner, it's, it's possible that, um, that fighting at Concord could have been prevented, but we'll never know. There's no 100% guarantee on that. As for Lord Hugh Percy, he was the lone officer whom saved the day for British forces in the aftermath of Concord. However, he was the first to advise change in attitude, meaning that all superiors, a.k.a. officers, could no longer underestimate American forces. Somebody's got to take a stand, and I'm glad that Lord Percy at least has the decency to to, uh, point this out. Of course, we must keep in mind that Lord Percy did not like the Stamp Act. Um, He was one of many... um, not just in Parliament, but in Britain who um, opposed um, the um, what we would now say unconstitutional measures passed upon the colonists without their con- proper consent. But you know Lord Hugh Percy, I think it's fair to say that he did have a better sense of respect towards uh, these militia fighters, given that, okay, they may not have been the best dressed of men, but yet they knew how to fight. So Lord Percy gets support from General Thomas Gage, whom concurred on his end that it was no longer worth viewing the rebels as rabble, a.k.a. uneducated or unruly people. In other words, these people know how to fight. They are educated. They have class. They may not have top-of-the-line outfits, but they know how to conduct themselves when it comes to a time of war. Then you have Admiral Samuel Graves, who was, a, who was the Royal Naval Commander in Boston. he became enraged over the militia's style over the malicious fighting style. OK? I mentioned this earlier. I've mentioned it before. I'll mention it again. The fighting style of the militia. wasn't that um, what we call guerrilla warfare or irregular fighting that um, resembled what um, Indians often did? Absolutely. And for those of you who need a refresher on what I mean by irregular style of fighting, well, how about hiding behind trees and other concealed wooded spots where troops could fire and fall back only to force the enemy off track into the unknown? So in other words, the enemy wants to chase the, um, chase the, um, the hunters down, because the enemy's being hunted, okay, they can do that, but how far should the, uh, should the hunted go into the woods to chase the hunter? Well, that's up for them, but the further they go, they may not leave the woods alive. So that, that's the, uh, the beauty, and yet the danger of irregular fighting is that you know, for a force to fight in an unconventional way That, onto itself, is like special teams. But for the opposition who's being fired upon, yes, they want a piece of the action, but yet if they don't know how to conduct themselves in this style of fighting, then they'll never know what truly hit them. And that's really what happened to the British at Concord. They were walking along, you know, marching to Miriam's Corner... And, that, and here's the thing, Miriam's Corner, you have, two, you have a multitude of uh, roads that you can turn on with a bridge, but no matter what direction um, regular forces, or I should say infantry forces took, they were met with an enemy, an enemy that was not afraid to not only just back down, but an enemy whose forces kept coming. It was almost like their version of... World War II with a term known as Blitzkrieg. It's a German term for a uh, lightning strike. And it is fair to say that maybe in the 18th century, in 1775 at Concord, that patriot forces, or at this time militia, were engaging in their own form of blitzkrieg, lightning strike, out of nowhere. Here the British are marching, thinking that they've got nothing to worry about, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, fires... Gunfire is being um, is being um, is coming upon the uh, British regulars at all directions to where they don't even have the best places to mobilize their forces to um, to um, measure a counter um, attack. They might have, but they don't know. They may not know, for all we know, where they're lined up. That another force behind them will will cut them off, and that is another another. Um, group of militiamen so that that's why Admiral Samuel Graves is so an, a, angry it's not so much that his, that the British were defeated but they were defeated in a manner that they did not expect that they were never um, expected to encounter but, that's, but we must keep in mind that while the British are so focused on order and tra- traditional customs of 18th century warfare style they got themselves a rude awakening and realizing that, hey, not everyone always abides by the proper rules of war. While British commanders bickered over whom was to blame for the infantry's debacle at Concord, what were the Americans doing? Well, I can tell you this much. They're not um, having um, celebration festivities, although it would be nice to think that they're doing that, but... They don't have time for uh, grand celebrations right now at this moment. They've still got a lot of unfinished work to do. For starters, they are gathering up the wounded to burying the dead. But it was at Cambridge where Whig leaders assembled and began preparing for what lied ahead. Cambridge, which is home to Harvard, became the new temporary or interim seat of government in Massachusetts. When someone says the interim seat of government, it means that it's just a temporary place until, until a, new lo, a new permanent location can be found. Well, you know, of course, Boston still is the capital of Massachusetts today, but remember, folks, in 1775, Boston is pretty much in the hands of, um, of British control. So if Boston is still in the hands of British control, you've got to go somewhere else to conduct uh, your governmental affairs. After all, (laughs) government's got to be functioning. And if it means doing it on an interim basis, that's better than having no government whatsoever. So where is Paul Revere? You know, I know I haven't mentioned him a lot recently. I haven't forgotten about him, but I'll say it again. Paul Revere's ride was more than just a a ride. It wasn't all about him. And remember, this whole movement, especially communication from bottom to top, it involves everybody. After all, everyone has a story to tell. And that's quite all right. Even Paul Revere would agree. But Paul Revere is in Cambridge the day after Lexington and Concord, and he was meeting with the Committee of Safety which is the closest thing to a functioning executive authority. The Committee of Safety pretty much was the, also the equivalent of like a modern-day executive branch. Did Paul Revere himself receive a daily allowance? Of course, when I think of receiving an allowance, I think of you know young kids doing their chores at home and maybe getting like $5 for their uh, work. Well, Paul Revere didn't receive what we might think of as a $5 allowance. But he did receive a daily allowance of five shillings. However, he never got reimbursed for his midnight ride. But do you think that really upset Paul Revere? No. Paul Revere was doing what was asked of him. That is to perform greater works besides working in your um craft, aka profession. He was performing one of God's works, not just uh within the church, but outside of church that um also merited um what do you call it? It, it merited um rewards for looking after your community. And he was a and he was a part of that greater uh courier. Um, post rider um, or greater courier network of riders who went above and beyond to warn the townspeople from all directions in Massachusetts that the regulars were coming. But you know what? Paul Revere still earned a salary, but it got reduced from five to four shillings. But I think it's fair to say he would have been fine with that because it wasn't about the money. It was, think about this, folks. Yes, it was one thing to get an allowance, but I think it's fair to say that these men at this time were more concerned about the outcome than they were about the income. When my wife and I were at Williamsburg last, we saw um, we saw a sign, and it had to do with uh, people who are in the teaching profession. So listen carefully uh, to all you teachers out there, whether you're retired or still teaching. The the slogan was this: "I'm not in it for the income; I'm in it for the outcome." Can we honestly say that our forefathers would have had the same philosophy? Absolutely. If I was alive during that time, yes, I would have been it for the outcome, not the in, been in it for the outcome versus the income. So, what became of uh, the Committee of Safety's most urgent tasks? Well, how about, for starters, I think this is probably the most important one of them all. To raise an army. Think about this. What, what has happened at Lexington and Concord was no isolated incident or incidents. The people of Massachusetts know that it's going to be a matter of time before this war becomes something bigger to where it's not going to be confined to just New England or Massachusetts alone, that it's going to impact the rest of the other colonies, the middle and southern colonies. So, yes, you're going to need to raise an army, not just for short-term purposes, but long-term. The committee itself sought to enlist 8,000 men for the siege of Boston, including an attachment of a circular letter being a written document to town committees throughout the colony, that is the colony of Massachusetts. So basically, a circular letter that um, would have multiple copies, but it would be distributed in every place of Massachusetts, in and, in and around Boston and in the outlying towns. The mass responses resulted, and there was success with this, folks, how about because of this written document being um, dispersed throughout the colony, to town committees, mass responses resulted in the formation of new units, a.k.a. regiments, which over time time laid foundations to establishing a continental army. Okay, what's one thing to raise an army? What about supplying an army with food essentials? Okay, remember, folks, we don't have... um, Food banks at this time are a food pantry like we know in, in today's uh, modern times. Although it might be fair to say that in a handful of the colonies that the church itself, especially in Virginia, uh, the, the Anglican church did look after the destitute and the poor. But at the same time, um, there has to be more than just churches looking after those who are less fortunate in terms of not only just providing those people with clothing, but how about for um, access to food. So, what kind of food do you think would be very essential to an army? How about food like beef and pork? Even to um, what we call biscuits or hardtack. Something that's going to keep these um, soldiers uh, nourished. How about controlling the spread of diseases like camp fever, a.k.a. typhus? You know, not. A, I, we must keep in mind, folks, that the uh, soldiers don't have their own personal tents. You've got people, maybe five or six soldiers, to a tent, or maybe three at best, depending on how big the tents are. But remember, we don't have modern-day showers. We don't have modern-day bathtub. I can't imagine where people are going to go to clean themselves. They're probably going to go to a river or to a a, a pond nearby. But who knows what kind of, of um, germs they could be spreading there. Um, not to gross you all out, but these are the realities in 1775. So this camp fever, a.k.a. typhus, is overcrowding, underwashing, lower standards of living. So when I'll just tell you all this now. When George Washington arrives to uh, Massachusetts in early July 1775, historians know that he, when he first met the, um, the uh, men who would make up the early version of the Continental Army, he was very shocked by their appearances. He basically knew that, okay, these may not be the most attractive-looking men, but we've got to find ways to um, ensure that people's health is a top priority and that um, disease itself would not um, destroy the Continental Army. Not to get off track, but um, there were smallpox outbreaks in Massachusetts and elsewhere in the other uh, colonies. But there were um, smallpox outbreaks uh, in 1775, and one of the biggest worries that George Washington had was protecting the Army. So he had two choices. He could inoculate soldiers. However, it was one thing to inoculate soldiers, but what if you let, released three or four of them too early to where once they left, they could have accidentally infected other soldiers who had not been inoculated? So Washington came up with a, a great solution, Washington and his forces, rather. One hospital would be built to, only for the um, military, Another hospital would be built in Brookline, which is outside of Boston, that would be for um, non military uh, personnel being everyday citizens or the or the for the greater public. Had you put both of these groups together as one in one hospital, both sides would have infected one another to where there would not have been a continental army that could have functioned so disease. Prevention of disease breaking out is a huge priority for what we now would consider national security, and that in the same thing it was in 1775. But another important measure was maintaining broad support for the greater Whig cause. Think about it we've, you know, scored a big victory at uh, Concord, we stood our ground at Lexington, but going forward now, we know in Massachusetts, rather, the people of Massachusetts know that that it's just a matter of time before this uh, conflict will become a greater conflict where the other colonies will see for themselves just how broad and how um, powerful the um, situation is with England. Did the Committee of Safety work efficiently in spreading the news about what happened on April the 19th? You all are going to really be intrigued with this. It is very intriguing, to say the least. Yes, at around 10 a.m. on April the 19th, shortly after uh, the shots had been fired at Lexington, the Committee of Safety sent post riders out whom provided reports of the first shots fired in Lexington. So in other words, post riders could have gone 20 miles away outside of Lexington, or even 30 at best, to warn those towns, hey, just a short while ago, Shots were fired at Lexington. We are at war with England. So this was their version of what we now call instant breaking news. The communications process wasn't taken lightly, and from the get-go, the Safety Committee worked tirelessly to shape the news from their perspective. Who is Israel Bissell? I don't expect many of you all have ever heard his name. I didn't even know about him until I read this book. But Israel Bissell was a 23 year old professional post rider from East Windsor, Connecticut. And East Windsor, Connecticut is not far from the Connecticut Massachusetts line, but if you ask me where that might be in relation to, uh, say, Boston, um, it's what we would call southwest of Boston, even though it's in uh, Connecticut, but it's closer to uh, western Massachusetts, and especially in places what we now know as uh, Springfield. Um, Northampton, uh, Agawam, uh, Holyoke, those areas of, of, of uh, far western Massachusetts. But anyways, Israel Bissell was a professional post-rider, and, and he traveled regularly along the roads between Boston and New York. It turns out on the morning of uh, April the 19th, he was in Watertown, 10 miles west of Boston, He got recruited by Committee of Safety to address an early report of action, a.k.a. combat, at Lexington. So, yes, he might be a professional post rider, but we could also say that he um, is like the equivalent of being a a news reporter. Bissell himself rode as far west into Massachusetts into Worcester, which is about 50 miles from Boston, where he arrived by 12 (laughs) o'clock... He rode into Norwich, Connecticut by 4 p.m. and New London, Connecticut by 7 p.m. That must, if I'm not mistaken, I believe that the horse he started out with didn't make it by day's end, but ironically, (laughs) um, at a tavern somewhere along the halfway point, um, tavern, um, tavern people were kind enough to give him another horse to finish the day's job. We must keep in mind, folks, that horses, while, yes, they can go the distance, they may not be able to cover long distances in one day's time like a car. From New London, Connecticut, the news of Lexington and Concord arrived to New York City on April the 23rd by 4 o'clock. So that's four days after. That's not bad considering 1775 standards. I mean, four days, folks, I mean, that's less than a full week. How about from New York to Philadelphia? The news arrived by 9 a.m. on April the 24th. From New York to Philadelphia, at this time, it was 90 miles. So the post rider rode 90 miles in 17 hours. So I did the math. 90 divided into 17, that's 5.29 or 5.3 miles per hour. So, in other words, this post rider would have gone just over five miles per hour. And we're not talking speed, we're talking distance. But he got the job done. Now, on April 26th, the week later, Baltimore, Maryland heard the news for the first time. Williamsburg, Virginia, nine days later, on April the 28th, Newburn, North Carolina, which is, along, which is on the coast of North Carolina. And one time New Bern was the capital of North Carolina, and probably around during 1775, it's fair to say that that still was the capital. but it learned the people of New Bern learned what had happened in Massachusetts two weeks later. Come May 9th, that's when Charleston, South Carolina learned about what was going on being almost three weeks after. So, I find it pretty amazing just how much, um, how quickly the news itself did get to other cities. Yes, it may have taken two to three weeks for Newburn and Charleston, but the news itself got arrived faster than say, <laughs> for uh, the British. And I'll mention that here soon. But in the second week of May, seventeen seventy-five. I should also point out that the first reports of Lexington and Concord got spread across the mountains into the Ohio Valley region. And there is a place in uh, Kentucky called Lexington, Kentucky, which is um, not far from Louisville or from uh, the capital being Frankfurt. Lexington, Kentucky, folks, believe it or not, got its name from a party of hunters in Kentucky, whom, once they had learned the news of what had happened a few weeks earlier, these this party of hunters named their campsite Lexington in honor of what had taken place on April the 19th, 1775. What a nice way to remember those whom lost their lives on the 19th, because after all, Lexington, you know, Lexington truly was where um, the first battle took place. It may have been... Um, it may not have had the same outcome like Concord did, but Lexington is where the first um, is where the start of um, actual battle preparations began. It was where our militia assembled, and it was where the first shots were heard around the world. It may not have those shots may not have come from our forces or from British regulars, but someone from the nearby distance from a stone wall fired being on our side, being that of the Americans, to say, hey, I'll fire for the uh, militia. And why do you think the militia didn't fire? Well, for one, Captain uh, John Parker told his forces not to fire, but two, he also knew that if they fired first, guess what would happen? He knew his forces, if any of them survived, which they did, they, he knew that they ran the risk of being um, arrested without any probable cause by British forces, and they would have been transported to England for um, committing treason against the crown. So that's why Captain Parker said, do not fire upon unless you're fired upon first, in fear that, hey, if my men fire first, they will automatically be um, found guilty of treason. How else did the Committee of Safety go about gathering public opinion? Okay, remember, we don't have any public policy think tanks at this time, but it is fair to say that the Massachusetts Committee of Safety might as well be its own version of a public policy think tank. So within four days after the 19th, which would have been around the 23rd, the committee gathered all justices of the peace to where they went about collecting... Sworn testimony from eyewitnesses over question of whom fired the first shots at Lexington and Concord. Okay, this is great. Justices of the peace. They are the ones who uh, whom oversee uh, the plaintiff and defendants uh, bring their uh, cases before them. So why not go to the people whom, whom were firsthand eyewitnesses? And depositions were taken from a majority of militiamen whom gathered on Lexington Common on the morning of uh, the 19th. Depositions were also given by British prisoners as well as from soldiers whom fought at Concord. The more depositions you have, the greater the case that you have to present because if you don't have enough depositions, then how are you going to be able to solidify your claims? Now, on April the 25th of 1775, six days after fighting, the Committee of Safety learned what General Gage was going to do, and that was to send his own reports of Lexington and Concord directly to London. General Gage's dispatches took at least... How many weeks do you think his uh, dispatches took to arrive to London? Was it three weeks? Was it five weeks or two? The answer is two. Whereas New England leaders addressed themselves to broader populations, a.k.a. communities at large, did General Gage's communication network remain stagnant? (laughs) Yes, his world of communication had preferred focusing on a chain of command to trusting officers based upon their rank. Remember communication from top to bottom? The communication being confined to just the inner circle? But worst of all, he only valued opinions from people within the ruling elite classes. You know, in order, in my opinion, if you're going to have a successful network of um, communication, it's got to start from the bottom to the top. That's why the Patriots or the militia forces or just in general the Whigs prevailed because they valued everyone's opinions regardless of where their rank in society was. They didn't confine it to just one sector. I do believe, had General Gage been a little bit more open-minded, he might have, um, he might have had uh, better success. On the other hand, though, this is where a double-edged sword comes into play. General Gage was ultimately forced into maintaining his old strategical habits, considering that the countryside, a.k.a. outlying areas of Boston, had become very hostile along with the fact that his messages were intercepted by enemy forces. Well, I could see why he is so hesitant to share information with a greater population of people, not just within the inner ranks, but perhaps with um, men who are outside the uh, confines of these inner ranks, in fear that perhaps those men would defect and um, share information to uh, locals about what was going to take place. After all, General Gage's wife, Margaret, more than likely was the source that um, broke the information to, jo- to Dr. Joseph Warren about the, um, about the uh, plan to uh, seize munitions at Concord. Of course, when uh, General Gage learned what his wife had done, he obviously uh, had her uh, sent back to England. We're still not 100% sure if that ever really did, if Margaret was the source, but there is a very strong likelihood that she was, given that, for one, she was from New Jersey, but had mixed uh, loyalties. She had some members of her family as loyalists, and then she had those whom were patriots. So Margaret really was in a no-win situation. And by a twist of fate... There were Loyalist newspapers. There were those, yes, loyal to King and Country in Massachusetts, most notably in Boston. But they didn't come out and defend General Gage on his behalf. Yes, there were some men who actually um, did take up arms with General Gage and his troops, but many of them were not really interested in fighting. They just wanted to remain loyal to King and Country. That's how it was, though, with many loyalists. Uh, Pockets in Colonial America, most notably even in uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania at this time. But even the Loyalist newspapers did not defend him on his behalf. So I think it's fair to say that if General Gage had lost the uh, support of the Loyalist newspapers, then it's fair to say that he had truly lost middle ground, because those whom did not fight and but yet will remain remained loyal to the crown, really were General Gage's, could have been seen as General Gage's uh, middle ground uh, backbone support, but unfortunately, they did not come out in large numbers to uh, support him. How did the Second Battle of Lexington and Concord get waged? Okay, this is where we really need to think long and hard, folks. Did it get waged by means of battle? Or did it get waged through means of nonviolent measures? The answer is through nonviolent measures ranging from depositions, newspapers to sermons. That's a great way to um, resolve a conflict without having to go without having to engage in actual bloodshed. It's one thing to fight a war, but fighting wars don't always garner popular opinions, telling the story of what happened gets people more intrigued. It also gets them to get a better understanding of what is really going on. And to hear what uh, soldiers have to say, that's powerful too. Popular opinion became a triumph for Americans, and its impact was felt everywhere in British America, where people's attitudes were transformed significantly by what had taken place at Lexington and Concord. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say that people in America maybe were feeling okay about themselves, but they really weren't feeling good, though, knowing that here they were being trampled on by an elephant that no matter where the elephant was going, the elephant um, didn't care about their fundamental rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Perhaps that uh, unfinished teapot in John Singleton Copley's portrait of Paul Revere now is shining brighter because there still is a beacon of uh, light at the end of the tunnel, and Revere's work now has um, reaped significant rewards not just his work, but that of the uh, Courier Riders and that of the uh, people of Massachusetts as a greater whole for taking his message and using it to their advantage to mobilize on their end to stand up to the mightiest empire in the world. Now, how did the news from Lexington impact an English immigrant whom arrived into Pennsylvania the year before, being 1774? And whom was this man? Well, for part one, uh, the news from Lexington brought this immigrant a new sense of restored hope, a.k.a. confidence, considering he had pretty much lost everything in England. Okay, and who was this man? Thomas Paine? Wouldn't he become the author of a of a uh, 50-page book, called, a pamphlet called Common Sense? And his most famous words in Common Sense were, These are the times that try men's souls. Within a year's time, Thomas Paine found employment in Philadelphia as editor of the Pennsylvania magazine. Its circulation increased from 600 to 1,500 subscribers. I think it's fair to say Thomas Paine has come to see America as a better land of opportunity than England. As for George Washington, where was he, when, he first, when first learning about what took place at Lexington? He was working on his farm at Mount Vernon. And, of course, when he learned about this, he knew that it was time to uh, take proper course of action. Well, to wrap up this podcast, I should say the following of this podcast episode, many men's lives would become greatly impacted by the events of April 19th, 1775. There's no question about that. And how they received these, those news events was another thing. But Americans had something good to feel about, considering her forces had proved they could go head to toe with the mightiest empire in the world and force the king's troops to go on the defensive where they, where they no longer were seen as invincible. Yes, we have uh, struck a huge blow to the king's um, army. We've also struck a blow to George III and to Parliament that, hey, yes, we have talked up a good talk in voicing our opposition. But now we have shown that on the battlefield we can voice our opposition by engaging in irregular-style warfare fighting, by letting it be known that mosquitoes... While, yes, maybe be smaller compared to an elephant, mosquitoes are not to be messed around with, and when an elephant disturbs the mosquito so much, mosquitoes will come at all angles to attack that elephant to the point where the elephant no longer is the bully. The elephant is now the one that's being bullied around because how because of how he is treated his subjects below him being the 13 colonies. Well, we've covered a lot of ground tonight, and I will point this out now that when I'm on the air again with you all next, um, the next uh, podcast episode for Paul Revere's Ride is going to be our last uh, episode for this um, series. It's been a great one, and I hope you all have found it beneficial. And I look forward to being on the air again next. And for those of you, um, I've said it before, I'll just say it again. Thank you for listening. You all have been wonderful. Continue to um, keep listening and continue to spread the word to those who want to podcast. Tell them to come to Anchor. It's free. The opportunities are limitless and the results go beyond the sky ceiling. Thank you again and stay safe. Good night.